0: It's Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, the 916th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. Now, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you have probably heard me talk about how I was banned from Twitter and Instagram in the fall of 2020. I got banned from Twitter on October 26th for calling a portly blue check country musician who no one has ever heard of retarded after he said that donald trump believed coyotes were bringing drugs and trafficking humans across our southern border and he thought trump meant the wild dogs and not the slang term for the actual traffickers of drugs and people who are referred to as coyotes now if you're not allowed to call that guy retarded there is something wrong with the world. And of course, there was something wrong with the world. And I was banned for almost two years. Didn't get my account back until September of last year. Now, you might be wondering why the hell I'm rehashing this story right now. And trust me, there's a good reason. And here it is. I want to tell you about an interaction I had last night on Twitter with a person who is prominent enough in Hollywood to really know what's going on. And I'm talking about a woman named Justine Bateman, who I have absolutely no problem with. I do not want this to be personal about her at all. And I just want to make that clear right from the very beginning. So she was following me in 2020, which meant that on a daily basis, she would see posts from me about COVID and about the COVID data, about how Hollywood was reacting to the COVID stuff I was not quiet on Twitter in 2020. I was not quiet about Trump. I was not quiet about election fraud. If you think about a sliding scale between total clueless normie villager and the most based red-pilled awake person on the planet, I was much further toward the clueless normie villager end of that spectrum. I was a far less tuned-in version of me right now. And I assume in three years from now, I'll be far more tuned in than I am now. It's a process, you see, just like anything else. My point is, I wasn't holding back then and people like her who were following me saw it. In fact, she followed me during that period. I only opened this Twitter account in the spring of 2020 because I had spent years off Twitter by choice. I opened the Twitter account because I was starting this podcast. And I'm mentioning all this to say she clearly wasn't offended by what I was saying back then. She seemed to be a pretty bold and knowledgeable person herself, relative to Hollywood, from what I can remember. And so when I responded to a post of hers last night, I didn't think that there would be much issue. I thought we might strike up an interesting conversation. I was fairly certain that she would disagree with the point that I was making, but I thought maybe she would have a response. So she tweeted video of a woman whose name I believe to be Sophia Banks because she hashtagged this woman. And it was a clip talking about how AI might be the way of the future with certain entertainment. And she wrote... It's revolting to see the glee with which this person describes the cratering of this hundred-year-old business. She is nauseating. And she was talking, of course, about Hollywood. We know that the writer strikes are going on there. Now the actors strike as well. Everyone is worried about AI. The writers are worried about AI, believing that AI will be tasked to write scripts. All writers will be doing, they will be relegated to checking the work of the AI, which is not by any means writing. Of course, you could argue that rehashing all the tired tropes of Hollywood film and television are not exactly writing either for most of the people doing it, but I digress. And actors are worried that AI will replace them as well. Their biometrics are recorded. Their voices are recorded. Both can be fed through AI to create their likeness, their voice in whatever manner one might choose. And then at that point, you don't need the writer. You don't need the actor. AI has made your business obsolete. And that's what Justine Bateman was commenting on. She doesn't think that it's good that people are gleeful about potentially making the film business and television business obsolete. And that's just fine. A lot of people in Hollywood believe that those two businesses are always artistic. That is not true. Most of the time, they are simply just creating products that they will sell people. They will sell these products to companies and companies will pay them to include their marketing with the content. They will also sell their product straight to consumers because consumers want to see their content and will pay money to go see it. And hey, we have free markets if people want that and they are willing to pay for it and somebody else wants to produce it. And wants to make money producing it? Wonderful. We have a deal. All good. But it's not always art. And much of the time, it's not art at all. It doesn't get some special standing. It doesn't have some intrinsic value beyond what it is. The Fast and the Furious 8 is not Apocalypse Now. It's not Beethoven. And it's not the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's a movie with cars and explosions. And whatever pop culture references are trendy at the moment, it's supposed to keep people entertained while their heads are filled with bad ideas. But you're not allowed to say that in Hollywood. Part of the deal in Hollywood is that everybody calls what everybody else does art, which then makes it important, which then means that they have to have Cinderella style balls so that they can congratulate one another by handing each other creepy little statues and trophies. But you're not allowed to talk about the business this way because it's art. And since it's art, it has to be valued on its own. It must be preserved at all costs. It must be revered at all times. It is therefore absolutely disgusting that someone might delight in the fact that the industry is having problems. And as you might imagine, people in the industry out there are very committed to getting on the right side of this issue, of these strikes. Of the AI elements, all the issues, everyone knows you get a bonus for being the most socially conscious person out there. Like when Mark Ruffalo decided it was his life's mission to save Native Americans by blocking the Keystone Pipeline. All the tribal leaders saying, please, Incredible Hulk, save us. But I don't want to totally make light of it. Of course, these are real people with real jobs and people are probably having a hard time with the work stoppage. And I do feel sympathy for those people having to go through that thing. But that sympathy ends at some point. And I decided to mention in a reply to that tweet why the sympathy she was seeking may not be on the horizon. And I said Hollywood thought it was funny that coal miners be permanently unemployed. And that's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not making that up. Hollywood literally mocked coal miners who were worried about their jobs because we needed to move beyond that. And by the way, I agreed with those people at that point. So I'm not trying to obscure my own past here. I'm just saying this is really what happened. This is really the attitude of that town and the people in it at that point. Journalists were mocking people as well. This is where the whole learn to code thing came from. People complained that all of these people working their asses off generational labor, trying to provide the resources that keep this country and its economy running. Those people were mocked and told, well, hey, sorry, you don't have jobs anymore. But, you know, we got this climate change thing we can't stop talking about. And if people are going to take us seriously, then it has to look like we're making progress. And so the progress we're going to make is we're going to reduce the country's energy supply and also fire all you people because you're backwoods, small town, white folks, even though they're not all white. So your jobs, your careers, your livelihoods, they just don't matter. Sorry about that. Hollywood didn't hesitate to make that case. I went on. Hollywood has advocated for entire industries Necessary to a functioning economy to be outlawed to solve non existent crises. Hollywood advocated unending lockdowns for COVID with no concern about whose livelihoods were destroyed. Hollywood has propagandized the shit out of this country for those hundred years without guilt, remorse, or apology. It's insane to me that everyone thought this thing was never going to come for Hollywood. And by that I mean this whole thing that is happening culturally, it's going to eventually touch everyone. I have said this many times. It is now touching Hollywood and they are crying that it is totally unfair and that the rest of the country should be supporting them. I concluded by saying everyone could just leave the ridiculous union system behind and make art if they're artists. It's weird. No one does that. And that's absolutely true. There are parallel industries to Hollywood already coming up right now. Each and every person in that town could just simply leave the union system behind, leave the studio system behind, go out and begin figuring out how to make films on their own with their talented friends. And we would probably have a better film industry in a very short time, a couple years, few years, but they won't do it because they're seeking the approval of that industry. They want to impress the gatekeepers in that industry. Even while knowing what it takes to do that, and I'm talking about interactions with the people in this world like Harvey Weinstein, for instance, the sacrifices and the compromises people out there make. You see, the thing is, they don't actually care about making the art. They care about being successful in that industry so that other people will be impressed by their success. It is the absolute pinnacle of the party of false decorum. So after I responded to this post and people started replying and responding to the post, after the post got a few thousand views, Ms. Bateman must have finally read my comments and read some of the comments responding to that and gotten a little upset. And at that point, she went ahead and blocked me and then hid that post so that anyone else looking at her post would not see that. And that's all right. I guess I get it. My post would be damaging to the cause she's fighting for. She can't answer the questions. She can't counter that point because absolutely all of it is true. So she blocked me. Now, I'm not complaining about this. It's not like we had a great friendship. We barely knew each other. I'm not even sure that I actually met her in person. We may have just been online friends, although I'm certain that we were at plenty of the same events over the years. But whatever. I bring this up because she was following me in 2020. So she wasn't offended by counter narrative speech and she was following me up till yesterday. So to the extent that she saw any of my posts and truthfully, I obviously don't know whether or not she did, but if she did, then there was nothing that would have offended her into even unfollowing me, much less blocking me despite the things I say, what I'm astounded by is how a person who was fairly with it in 2020 could now be so detached from what normal Americans think about all of this. And I look at the situation here and I see similarities to the treatment of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the attempts to marginalize him. I see similarities with the Ron DeSantis campaign and the other Republican also-rans believing that there's some opportunity out there to win a primary against Donald Trump. And I'm absolutely baffled at the degree of derangement that these people must be experiencing because nothing about the real world right now, if you've been paying attention over the last few years, would suggest that Hollywood would find any sympathy from the American public while striking Or that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could be marginalized to an effective enough degree to make Joe Biden seem viable, like a smart decision. Or that the same would apply to Donald Trump. And I thought, how is this possible? Well, we know how it's possible. It's possible because of the censorship and the propaganda. I wasn't the only person to get censored around that time. There were certainly people censored before I was. And then plenty of people, of course, were censored after I was too. But that second half of 2020 was the massive wave of censorship. They began getting rid of the COVID people. They began getting rid of the mail-in ballot people, the election people. And then throughout 2021, we saw them begin to shut down the insurrection people and then the vaccine people. Just wave after wave of people being banned from the conversation because they were saying the no no words. Now, I've talked before about how I call Twitter the intellectual kids' table. The reason I do that is because when the censorship came down, a lot of people worried about the status of their quote unquote platform. They knew it was wrong to censor, but they also knew that other people were being censored and they didn't want to lose their platform and all their followers and all the money that they were making on their platform, whether it was an Instagram influencer or someone with a YouTube show or someone who makes money on a podcast. No one wanted to say the no-no things because they knew that if they did, then they would risk losing their platform. So instead, people just self-censored. They shut up about all the most important things, knowing that if they didn't, their lives were going to be affected. They might have to find a different platform and rebuild, and they didn't trust their own audience to follow them to wherever they might end up. They didn't think they could rebuild their platform somewhere else. So they decided, yeah, it's all right. I won't talk about election fraud. There's plenty of other stuff to talk about. I don't need to talk about the vaccines. There's plenty of other stuff to talk about. And they made that argument to themselves on issue after issue so that they could keep their platform. And by doing that, they turned social media and these platforms into the intellectual kids table. They knew there were certain things they were not allowed to say or else they would get in trouble. And so to avoid getting in trouble, they obeyed. They made sure not to say the no, no words, and they begged for people's approval. They tried to entertain people by being the edgiest person at the intellectual kids table. And here we are. The important conversations got shut down. People were banned. The people who weren't banned self-censored. And so all the important conversations just disappeared. Now, it's bad that that was all done from the top. It's bad that the government colluded with all these various companies to censor people. But it's also bad that the people who were consuming this content, who were on the right track with these ideas and understood that something was wrong accepted that the people they had been listening to were censored because of disinformation and because they didn't want to end up being censored themselves. They actually went out and made the argument that all that other stuff was disinformation. They were the gatekeepers. They were the vanguard. They knew where the edge of sensibility and reason was. And anything beyond that was conspiracy theory and mis and dis and malinformation. And everything became always a half measure. Like, who's to say whether or not masks work, but we do know it's a bad idea to force them on children in the schools. Who's to say whether or not lockdowns work, but we do know it's a bad idea to have the schools and churches closed. Well, no, the whole thing is a bad idea. They'll know about the election problems, the problems with the voter registries, the drop boxes, the mobile voting, the ballot harvesting, the early voting, the machine problems. They'll know that all that stuff is true and should be concerning, but they'll still say, well, you don't have any evidence that there was election fraud and certainly not enough to change the results, the outcome of the race. Can we talk about literally anything other than this, please? They went along with everything in the same way, and they thought they were right or at least safe to do it because they thought the other conversation, the counter narrative conversation wasn't even being had. They ignored it. They saw people get banned and removed. They assumed that it was for good cause, good reason. It's because they were spreading disinformation and they convinced themselves that the best path forward was to ignore all of that, just move on, let go. Focus on the future, and in the future, everything will be fixed. We don't need all those banned and censored people. They were all spreading disinformation anyhow. And I've continually been surprised about the effects of all that since I have returned to that Twitter platform. It's now been nine months. And the damage done over this period has not been repaired at all. These people have not figured it out. They thought they were the smartest people anywhere because they were the smartest people at the intellectual kids table. They still think they're the smartest people anywhere, even as all of their ideas are blown up in their faces on a regular basis, like every day. Most of what they convinced themselves was true about most of these important issues is proven false in front of them and they can't accept it. Not from the no-no people, because that would mean that the no-no people are right and they're wrong and they have to be wrong. Otherwise, the whole thing comes down. Otherwise, they realize that spending the last two and a half years attention farming on Twitter rather than figuring out what was going on was probably not the smartest idea, especially not for the very smartest people on the Internet. But this problem is really pervasive, especially when you think about the news media as well, even the quote unquote conservative news media. The establishment conservative news media did not advance any further than the social media sites did. They self-censored in the same way because they wanted to keep their platforms. Fox News was hit with a friendly lawsuit from Dominion and shut up about election fraud for the next two and a half years. And we know it was a friendly lawsuit because Fox gave them $800 million for absolutely nothing in a case that they easily could have won because the evidence showed That Fox News was not lying. These people decided to forego the counter narrative about every important issue. And they still believe that they have an accurate perspective on the belief of American voters out there. While nothing could be further from the truth, there is not going to be a popular social movement to save the writers and save the actors, particularly not from their own commie unions and the global regime studios that they serve, that they work hand in glove with, and not for the benefit of labor. The unions exist to convince the labor that they're getting the best deal from the studios they can possibly get, and if they don't approve of it, then they are actively hurting the most vulnerable members of their own community. We're talking about groups of people who have formalized racial quotas for award season, and they expect to get the support of the American public and become incensed when they hear that support isn't coming. Think about what it means that people have missed all the information on so many of these important issues. Think about the impact that's had. That is the consequence, the fallout of this censorship regime. Anyone who accepted it and went along with it has been left absolutely clueless about what's happening and what is ultimately coming. And I bring all this up to reassert what I suggested a few weeks ago, and that's that we have some major revelations and some major motion on the horizon when it comes to election fraud and the exposure of the fact that our elections are stolen all around the country, at every level, not just once. It's got nothing to do with Trump. Our elections are stolen. People sooner or later are going to realize that. And it seems as though that revelation may happen in a rather extraordinary public manner and perhaps the biggest boomerang of all time. Now, we discussed last week the angle that special counsel Jack Smith might take, legally speaking, to attempt to prosecute Donald Trump. And how much of this was stemming from the January 6th investigation to jog your memory. The New York Times article from last week with the headline potential Trump charges include civil rights law used in voting fraud cases. They write two of the statutes were familiar from the criminal referral by the House January 6th committee and months of discussion by legal experts conspiracy to defraud the government and obstruction of an official proceeding. But the third criminal law cited in the letter was a surprise, Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, which makes it a crime for people to, quote, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the, quote, free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. And I talked about how election fraud itself was a conspiracy to defraud the government the effort to avoid the public hearing of objections to the electors of six different states and the doing away with that part of the process that actually occurred on January 6th was an obstruction of an official proceeding and that things like blatant censorship, the denial of due process, the denial of equal treatment and countless other violations of rights by the federal government all presented the opportunity For these charges against Donald Trump to be turned around against the people actually involved with the usurpation of this country and the biggest boomerang of all time, including on the election fraud issue, because the justification for all of this hinges on the idea that the election really was free and fair safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. And it's quite clear that none of that is true. Now, I suspected that we might get to some of that indirectly, but it wouldn't be the major focus. I just figured that would be a fortunate public outcome as the public gets to witness what this process is. They would hear the arguments for the other side and they would realize, oh, this is not how it was told to us. But I didn't think that that effect would be the intent of the process. I mean, I didn't want to be greedy, but it seems like maybe that's exactly what we're going to get.
3: It is interesting, Ben, though, from what Olivia is saying, right, that not only did the president in this meeting want to do a press conference on how great election security was and it was so wonderful and praising it left and right. That is frustration then. And the guy he fired shortly thereafter was the guy who was actually saying that there might be a challenge to election security in the form of Russia, right? It's because Russia's the third rail for the
2: former president. Yeah, I mean, Chris Krebs sort of walked into into a split rail but with, between both Russia and then saying the election was, was otherwise secure. Um, but all of this and this meeting is particularly important in terms of the reckoning that the country needs to have with Trump's election denial charges. Because the, the 30% of the country not believing in the credibility of our elections is not a sustainable number. And Donald Trump, bringing Donald Trump to account to actually prove the underlying case that he claimed uh, was true would be a real service to the country.
0: Now, just so you know who said that, that's Ben Ginsburg, who was described by CNN as a Republican attorney. And they also note that he co-chaired the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. He was a former attorney for the RNC. He worked as national counsel for the Bush-Cheney presidential campaign in 2000 and 2004. While doing that in 2004, he also gave legal advice to the 527 group Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, which caused him some problems. He's had positions at William and Mary Law School and the Harvard Institute for Politics. He was national counsel for Mitt Romney's campaigns in 2008 and 2012. He signed an amicus curiae brief submitted to the Supreme Court in support of same-sex marriage during Hollingsworth versus Perry. And then Barack Obama chose him and Robert Bauer, a Democrat, to co-chair that presidential commission on election administration. In a 2020 op-ed for The Washington Post, he wrote, The truth is that after decades of looking for illegal voting, there's no proof of widespread fraud. At most, there are isolated incidents by both Democrats and Republicans. Elections are not rigged. Absentee ballots use the same process as mail-in ballots. Different states use different labels for the same process. Well, mail-in ballots have always been known to be the method of voting most open and vulnerable to fraud. And he's certainly aware of the problems with machine voting. Having been an attorney for the Bush-Cheney campaigns, he was an attorney for the opposition in both of Barack Obama's victorious election cycles, and then Obama appointed him to co-chair the presidential commission on election administration. Here were their recommendations. An expansion of online voter registration by the states to enhance both accuracy of the voter rolls and efficiency. And here we are. Ten years later, with millions of additional voters on the rolls, many of whom are not eligible, no longer live at the addresses on file, and some of them are dead. We know about the problems with Eric, the Electronic Registration Information Center. We know how states are leaving that. We know about private partnerships between these various voter registration groups and the states, these Various groups given direct access to the voter rolls so that they can add registrations all they want. This system is totally electronic. And with same-day registration, they can create new voter registries whenever they need. More recommendations. Having all states update and exchange their voter registration lists to create the most accurate lists possible to increase registration rates, reduce costs, and protect against fraud. The expansion of voting before Election Day. Recognizing that the majority of states now provide either mail-in balloting or in-person early voting, and that voters are increasingly seeking these options. You see that? Voters want the options, and we've already given it to many of them, so we should expand these policies, early voting, mail-in voting, the increased use of schools as polling places, and naturally the regime is in control of schools, Recognizing and addressing the impending crisis in voting technology as machines bought 10 years ago with post 2000 federal funds wear out and require replacement with no federal appropriations on the horizon. So they need more money to buy more voting machines because the voting machines become obsolete. You'd think that they'd have amazing new systems with amazing new software, but no, no, they don't. This list, by the way, is from the official recommendations. This is on EAC.gov. More recommendations. To usher in this needed next generation of equipment, reforming the standards and certification process to allow innovation and the adoption of widely available and significantly less expensive off-the-shelf technologies and software-only solutions. Improving the ability of military and overseas voters to access ballots and other voting materials through states' websites. The increased use of electronic poll books for greater accuracy and efficiency. Wait a second. Can those be hacked? Were those hacked? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they totally were. But we got to increase their use. Assuring that polling places are accessible to all voters, are located close to where voters live and are designed to function smoothly. That's weird. Why did they reduce the number of polling places and shift to large centralized voting centers? And there are a few other recommendations as well, but each and every one of those recommendations is now clearly visible as a problem in the election system. So this presidential commission on elections administration and paneled by Barack Obama gave a series of recommendations that have all made our elections less secure And it is this man, Ben Ginsburg, who was co-chairing that commission. He essentially compiled a report that encouraged the government to make it even easier to steal elections. Each and every one of those recommendations goes in the opposite direction of election integrity. And now he is saying that what we need is a public reckoning about Donald Trump's claims of election fraud, election theft and election interference. And he is actively championing the idea that that reckoning be held during this Jack Smith trial of Donald Trump stemming from January 6th and the information that the sham January 6th committee put together. And that, my friends, is absolutely glorious. That is a fantastic idea for us. That is spectacular. I would absolutely love to see them try that. And it is such a bad idea for them that you almost have to think that Ben Ginsberg must be working undercover. And that, my friends, is why I shared the story about Hollywood's cluelessness and the intellectual kids table. I often go back and forth thinking about whether or not it's possible that these people actually think. Everything out there in the public is like it was before. And they can just tell their stories and have people believe them. There's this weird effect that is totally unknowable when you're asleep. But when you have woken up, you see all of these stories for exactly what they are. And rather than having the effect intended by those telling the stories, the effect is the exact opposite. Does Ben Ginsberg really believe That putting claims of election fraud on display in front of the entire country while trying to take down Donald Trump, bring Donald Trump to his reckoning. Does he really believe that that's going to work and that people are going to believe that people are going to see Donald Trump as evil for making these claims? There is no way that's going to happen. And I want to get into some election fraud related stories in just a second. But Mark Mitchell from Rasmussen was back on the war room this morning discussing the state of belief in this country. And as I always say, the polls cannot be trusted in their numbers. But over time, when they are using the same method repeatedly, you are able to observe the shift in the polling and that in itself is an interesting indicator of where the country is. Here's what he said today to Steve Bannon.
2: Your math, sir, correct me if I'm wrong, shows that it's a much bigger crisis when it comes to the 2020 election and people's just understanding of election fairness, integrity in this nation, sir?
3: Absolutely, I wish he cited his source. I bet that we poll more on the issue of election integrity than that pollster polls on everything all year. Uh, 62% of voters think it's at least somewhat likely that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 election, 30%. 65% of voters think it's at least somewhat likely, including 55% of Democrats, that cheating is going to affect the outcome of the next presidential election. And half of America agrees with the statement that there's absolutely no way that Joe Biden got 81 million votes in 2020.
0: So Ben Ginsberg is claiming it's only about 30% of the country who thinks that our elections are stolen. That is Clearly, patently, obviously false. And I have to say, I do love that the questioning has changed into the framing I have been using for years now, which is there's no way in the world that Joe Biden got 81 million real, lawful American votes. That is the way to approach this issue, and a lot of people out there have adopted that language and that framing. And that, of course, is wonderful news. Rasmussen reports. Over 60% of Americans know that the election in 2020 was stolen. Over 60% of Americans expect cheating to affect the outcome in 2024. Ginsburg says 30% is unsustainable. Well, how about 60%, 65%? And those numbers, again, are probably skewed lower because plenty of people are still hesitant to admit what they know to be true about the elections for fear of reprisal. But it's also worth noting that 30% figure from Ginsburg, because that is the sort of thing we hear all the time when they want to try to marginalize Trump supporters. They say, well, you know, Trump's got 34, maybe 38% of the country. It's not that much. It's 34, 38% of the country. And not even all of them believe this thing that Trump keeps saying. So it's like 30% of the country tops that believe this thing. As if no independents believe it, no non-MAGA Trump supporters believe it, no Democrats believe it. It's only this weird, marginalized, extreme fringe view of MAGA, but not even all of MAGA and Trump's only 34, 38% of the country. So it's only a 30% view out there. Virtually no one believes that the elections are stolen. They use these numbers all the time about anything And because of that child-brained villager thought process I just described, that number always makes sense to them. They're like, oh yeah, well, they're talking about Trump supporters and it's not all Trump supporters who believe that, of course, because, you know, they don't all believe the same thing every time Donald Trump says something, even though they are complete and total cultists. (laughs) But it's definitely not all of them who believe that crazy thing. So it's probably only 30% of the country. The villagers out there really do believe that about any subject. They think every single opinion that exists outside the normie sphere is just this fringe 30% of lunatic Trump supporters, but it's not. It's over 50% of independents. And when it comes to cheating in 2024, it's over 50% of Democrats. If they want a public reckoning amidst this Jack Smith trial, by all means, bring it. I can't wait. So I mentioned a couple of weeks ago we were getting new rounds of election stories. It seemed like we were in for a season full of reruns on the election, and I feel like that was accurate. More election news is coming out constantly. This is in The American Thinker from July 22nd, and it's by a woman named Marley Hornick, who is doing the New York Citizens Audit. You may be familiar with some of her work. I got to meet her briefly at some point last year, and the work she's performed on the voter registries in New York is honestly astounding. But this article is entitled, What is Election Certification? And she co-authored this piece with a man named Harry Robert Ory. We're at a crossroads many did not see coming. George Orwell's prescient novel, 1984, predicted the dystopian realities that face us today. One of the famous quotes from 1984 refers to human society in general. The choice for mankind lies between freedom and happiness, and for the great bulk of mankind, happiness is better. Today, the question is, will we choose the dwindling illusion of happiness or secure our grandchildren's freedom? The key that turns every lock bolted against freedom is elections. We cannot simultaneously have representative government and compromised elections. The king of America, the law, is tethered to the sovereign, the people, through the elective process. The loyalty of those we temporarily assign the privilege of writing and enforcing the law is checked only by the honesty of our elections. Otherwise, the king goes rogue. Sound familiar? Before applying any expensive patches to the twigs of a broken voting system, let's examine it at the root. Who is responsible for guaranteeing trustworthy elections? Under current federal law, each state has a chief election official who swears to and attests that an election is both accurate and compliant. This is the point of certification. Each of these individuals is bound to a sacred duty of maintaining valid, lawfully conducted elections an incredible honor upon which our liberty pivots. With the complexity of our voting systems, this is no small feat. So there is significant federal support ensuring that election officials have everything needed to perform the appointed task. Our voting systems are designated critical national security infrastructure. And that happened under Barack Obama, by the way. Election conduct is therefore dictated by an interwoven tapestry of state and federal laws that protects and records every nexus where data cross into or out of the system. On the federal level, three primary laws come into play. The National Voter Registration Act of 1993, the Help America Vote Act of 2002, and the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2002, revised in 2014. These laws define exact procedures, audit trails, and system controls from registration through certification. The definition of certification is being officially attested or authoritatively confirmed as being genuine or true as represented or complying with or meeting specified requirements or standards. We have been force fed the assertion that the 2020 election was the most secure election in history. Many theories have attacked this idea, some compellingly so, but little has changed. A simple question has been overlooked in the noise. When officials certified the federal elections in 2020 and 2022, did certification meet the standard of accuracy and compliance? Now, I have discussed this many times. We often get bogged down in trying to, quote unquote, prove election fraud of a certain amount and prove that that election fraud had a certain effect and prove that the race was changed through that election fraud. All of that approaches the issue in exactly the wrong way. There is no proof anywhere in the world that can possibly be acquired. That shows Joe Biden got 81 million real lawful American votes. And without that proof, elections, should not have been certified and were not certified legally. Thus, the fraud is baked in at the certification level and it is irrefutably there. That means that, quote unquote, proving a certain amount of fraud in any given location enough to overturn the reported results that are a product of fraud is entirely beside the point. After two plus years of volunteer analysis of the voter rolls and vote in New York and other states, we can definitively say that the certifications neither met the accuracy requirements nor complied with the law and its intent. In fact, we can prove the gross inaccuracy of certified federal elections. Certification was an outright fraud under color of law, denying the U.S. electorate our civil right to a just and fair election and the domestic tranquility it provides. Does this mean Donald Trump or other officials won their elections? No, it means that no one knows who won. And that, of course, is true. But then when you look at the system and who benefited from it, understanding that the beneficiaries are the same people who controlled the system, It is not a great leap to understand what the outcome would have been. But naturally, I accept that this is technically true, which is why we should have had audits and recounts and made sure the system worked. And if the election held under that system was irredeemably flawed, then a new election should have been held. And I was saying this throughout the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. But back to the article our findings are extensive and disturbing. One massive vote to voter discrepancies. That means the number of votes and the number of voters are not the same. Two millions of legally deficient voter registrations, millions and millions all over the country, millions in individual states. Number three, gross failure to determine if all votes were from unique individuals qualified to vote. Number four, peer-reviewed evidence of an algorithm creating fake and unlawful voter registrations embedded in the New York State voter rolls. And if you want to see exactly how that was done, you can find videos of Marley Hornick explaining the entire thing, New York Citizens Audit, Marley Hornick, M-A-R-L-Y-H-O-R-N-I-K. What she explains will knock your socks off. Number five, pervasive failures of identity resolution prior to registration. That means that for many of these registrations, there is absolutely no reason to believe that the person registered represents a real person that could be verified. Six failures of procedural process requirements, and seven massive numbers of tallied votes that have no valid state identity information. We are being continually hammered by pernicious media to deny the reality staring us in the face. In other American eras, how would such rampant misconduct be addressed? Way back in the olden days of 2017, the DOJ published an official guide on prosecuting election law violations that includes many powerful statements. And she cites from this guide. Election fraud. Fraud usually involves corruption of one of three processes, the obtaining and marking of ballots, the counting and certification of election results, or the registration of voters. And we have problems at Every one of those levels, we have verifiably fraudulent or unverifiable entries at each one of those levels and blatant violations of the law. By definition, that means there was election fraud. Federal jurisdiction. The federal government asserts jurisdiction over an election offense to ensure that basic rights of United States citizenship and a fundamental process of representative democracy remain uncorrupted. In a recent article, Hornick cited an 1888 case in the Supreme Court as precedent for the principle that disobedience of the law constitutes intent by an election official. The law says federal elections are a zero trust operation requiring zealous exactness on the part of administrators, zero trust. That means that they have to prove that what they did was right. We don't have to prove that something they did was wrong beyond a shadow of a doubt to the point where everybody agrees and admits, "Okay, yes, that was wrong. Or to the point where the media will tell everybody, okay, yeah, they did the wrong thing. Zero trust. They have to be able to positively show everyone that what they did was right. I have been screaming this for nearly three years now. We are getting all of this backward by falling into the trap where we have to prove to someone to the degree they require That fraud happened in this place, in this or that way, and it would have had this or that effect, and then you have to do that enough times to convince them that each one of the swing states was wrong, and then you have to keep going beyond that if you actually want to make the claim that the system is actually designed and set up to allow for stolen elections. And you have to do all of this while they plug their ears and whine and cry and shout about baseless claims and no evidence. Back to the article. More language from the same DOJ document defends this assertion. Federal interest in the integrity of the franchise was first manifested immediately after the Civil War. Between 1868 and 1870, Congress passed the Enforcement Acts, which served as the basis for federal activism in prosecuting corruption of the franchise until most of them were repealed in the 1890s. They cite that same case. Many of the enforcement acts had broad jurisdictional predicates that allowed them to be applied to a wide variety of corrupt election practices as long as a federal candidate was on the ballot. In Coy, the Supreme Court held that Congress had authority under the Constitution's Necessary and Proper Clause to regulate any activity during a mixed federal slash state election that exposed the federal election to potential harm Whether that harm materialized or not, Coy is still good law. And this is from that DOJ document about election fraud. Back to the article. Even if investigations were to reconcile all of the votes and no decisions changed, the certifications were still perjury. New York voting data are in a state of total loss of control. The inescapable conclusion is that election officials either botched or destroyed the validity of our elections, thereby destroying the trust Americans deserve to have in the election process. The mainstream liars decry our evidence as damaging to our republic while denying the misconduct that lies in plain sight. We are not about who won the 2020 and 2022 elections. We demand that our election officials obey the law. Through our organization, United Sovereign Americans, we intend, one, to make sure 2024 is a lawfully conducted election nationwide. Two, to expend our effort to train other states on how to do these investigations. Many following our lead are already finding the same problems. Three, to hold the perjurers who are destroying our democratic republic accountable. Four, to make sure systems in use are free from manipulation and abuse. And Five, to file legal challenges to misconduct of elections and sue those that broke the law. Continuing with Orwell, quote, and if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth, end quote. And they conclude At United Sovereign Americans, we insist upon the real truth and we stand for freedom. And I really love the work that Marley Hornick has done. I find her presentations on the problems with New York voter registries to be absolutely compelling. And I think this article is great because this is the real point. None of the elections anywhere were legally certified. It doesn't matter how much of the process they went through. It was a fraud at each and every step of the process. Each and every official tasked, with these certifications, has a fiduciary duty, in addition to any oaths they've sworn, to make sure that the results they are certifying are accurate and according to the law. And none of them did it. This isn't a revelation. I have been saying this for nearly three years now, as have many others. Each and every bit of the process was a fraud. Joe Biden's administration is illegitimate. Therefore, every act of his administration is similarly fraudulent and does not comport with the law. I fully believe that we will eventually reach the point where people do understand that, in fact, fraud vitiates everything. But let's get to some other election news. Captain Seth Keschel yesterday reported that Spalding County, Georgia, has voted to mandate hand counting of readable portions of ballots to make sure that they match the machine count. Now, we have talked extensively about the QR codes, about how the machine prints out the results in English. You selected this candidate, this candidate, this candidate. It'll have Donald Trump's name. It'll have the name of your city councilman or the secretary of state or whatever office is being voted for. But all of your actual vote is contained in that unreadable QR code. We talked about this just a few weeks ago when I covered the J. Alex Halderman report. What Spalding County has decided to do is count up that readable portion and try to reconcile that with the results counted up by the machine as it reads those QR codes. So this is a very interesting strategy. Keschel notes that this will certainly be met with resistance from the secretary of state and probably lawsuits. He also notes that it would be a lot harder for them to sue 100 counties at once. So this is the sort of thing that will not fix the problem, but it will throw a wrench in the gears of that fraud creation system. Last week, we talked about Michigan's Soros attorney general, Dana Nessel, going after the 16 individuals who represented Michigan's alternate slate of electors in the event that there would be further review of the election. My good buddy, Brian Lupo, who you may know as CanCon, wrote this up in the Gateway Pundit on Sunday. He wrote the charges include forgery, election fraud and conspiracy. The Gateway Pundit published a video where the electors publicly called their votes a backup slate and affirmed this is not a replacement. Their actions were to, quote, give a life vote to Michigan legislators under the presumption that there would be an honest investigation and an audit of the Michigan election, especially in Wayne County, where canvassers initially refused to certify the vote because of an imbalance in 70 percent of the 134 absentee counting boards in Detroit. And you may or may not remember that, but the Wayne County board was not going to certify the election until two of the holdouts were threatened and then changed their position overnight. Lupo writes that Michigan's house elections, vice chair representative Rochelle Smith has released a statement arguing that what the electors did was completely legal, completely valid and anticipating that there would be an honest investigation into Michigan voter fraud. And here is her quote from the statement. I was an election clerk before entering the legislature, and I'm very familiar with the administration of our elections. What the Trump electors did in 2020 was completely legal, completely valid, and anticipating that there would be an honest investigation into Michigan voter fraud the Trump electors were preserving the ability for a voter fraud investigation to happen after December 15th, 2020. The Trump electors committed no forgery, no fraud, and zero violation of Michigan's election laws. Dana Nessel knows this, but she brought charges against these people anyway. Our Michigan attorney general is an absolute disgrace to the rule of law. This is a political prosecution by an attorney general who shamelessly abuses the law for the basest of political motives. Dana Nessel, as attorney general, is a threat to the rule of law and our system of governance. Now, obviously, I have no ability to predict the future here, but this seems like blatant lawfare that will eventually blow up in their faces. It's going to be very hard to convict these 16 people. I would certainly never argue that our courts are free of corruption and that convictions like this would be impossible, but certainly they would be impossible under any fair system. And I imagine that by the time any of this could possibly go to trial, the country is not going to have much of an appetite to prosecute and punish people like this, especially not at this point with so many people understanding that our elections are in fact stolen. But moving on, this is from Just the News on Saturday. The headline, Watchdog, nearly 800,000 inactive registrants in Illinois voter rolls. And this is a story we have heard many times from many different states from the exact same people. And I'm talking about Judicial Watch. Tom Fitton's organization is always out there seeking information from government. Freedom of information requests, suing to get government information. Forthcoming research from nonprofit conservative watchdog Judicial Watch indicates Illinois has close to 800,000 inactive registered voters. Judicial Watch announced Friday a federal judge ordered the Illinois State Board of Elections to turn over voter roll data to the Illinois Conservative Union and three registered voters. The state had allowed review in person in Springfield during limited hours, but that was 200 miles from where the plaintiffs live. Friday's ruling means plaintiffs will get access to digital copies of voter rolls for the past 15 elections to include registrant's full name, residential street address, email address, telephone number, county and state voter identification number, age of the registrant and the registrant status, active or inactive, and the most recent date the entry was changed. Judicial Watch also announced forthcoming research it plans to release based on recent census data and information Illinois reported to the Federal Election Assistance Commission that shows 14% of Illinois counties have more registered voters than citizens over 18, indicating the state has close to 800,000 inactive registrants. At what point do normal people? who do not want to believe that their government is illegitimate and acting against their interests, understand what it means that there are hundreds of thousands and in some states millions of illegitimate voter registrations. People are so averse to admitting that something is actually wrong, that even if they admit the problem with the registrations, they'll still say, well, okay, that's fine. There are all these extra registrations, but that doesn't mean that people are going to be voting for those registrations. There's no person there. So there's obviously no vote. Well, okay, child brain, if you don't want to see it, I guess you don't have to, but what kind of responsible adult would ever think that way? And if you're going to think that way, you should probably stop telling other people that there's voter suppression out there and that you really care about the value of everyone's vote. That is an admission that you don't care about everyone's vote at all. Also from Just the News on Saturday, Wisconsin Democrats file a lawsuit to overturn state Supreme Court ruling on absentee ballots. Democrats in Wisconsin have filed a lawsuit to overturn the state Supreme court's decision and allow voters to return absentee ballots in drop boxes. So they want the Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes back. The lawsuit was filed on Thursday by the Elias law group. That is Mark Elias, the DNC attorney who was responsible for helping to facilitate the payments and arrangements with fusion GPS that eventually produced the steel dossier. This is the guy that runs the Democrats lawfare efforts that make sure their system of election fraud, that election fraud apparatus remains in place and that no challenges are successful. The attorneys argue that the ban upheld by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, quote, burdens the right to vote and makes voters depend on the Postal Service's, quote, unsecured mailboxes, So they're claiming that the Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes are more secured than the United States Postal Service while they are arguing for universal mail in balloting. Again, this is so blatantly awful that at some point you have to wonder if Mark Elias is like a double agent trying to help us. Previous campaign cycles have put a much-needed spotlight on the blatant attempts to use restricted access to absentee voting as a means of voter suppression, Anissa McMillan, a plaintiff in the lawsuit, wrote in a press release. As a result of this, vulnerable communities, including people of color, face extraordinary barriers to casting their ballots, she added. We hope this legal effort will bring relief to Wisconsin voters while expanding access to the ballot for every eligible voter in the state. Another law that is being challenged under the state court's ruling is one that states any problems with absentee ballots must be fixed by the voter before 8 p.m. on Election Day, according to the Washington Examiner. So Wisconsin's Supreme Court had already overruled those Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes. They ruled that they were unconstitutional. Not that they were only unconstitutional from that moment forward, but that they had always been unconstitutional, including when they were used for the 2020 election. How in the world can you say that Joe Biden was legitimately elected when one of the state's elections was unconstitutionally held? This isn't new information. This has been true the entire time. And apparently Mark Elias is going to do PR for us and announce this all to the world, which is wonderful. And in Georgia, we have the Georgia State Election Board suing to procure true the votes evidence. The group from 2000 Mules, Greg Phillips, Catherine Engelbrecht, the state of Georgia is suing to get their evidence. I imagine that they are probably not in possession of that evidence. So it's likely that the state can sue all they want, but that that evidence is tied up elsewhere. This situation has always been a bit mysterious, but seeing the patterns that have formed with evidence in a whole range of other issues makes me think that the reason this evidence has not been produced is because it's unproducible. It is tied up elsewhere, but we shall see. Now, Joe Biden is absolutely illegitimate. But despite that, people are talking about his impeachment. I have said countless times on this podcast, I do not believe that Joe Biden will be impeached and convicted. That is not how Joe Biden will be removed from office. Not that he is legitimately in office in the first place. You cannot impeach an illegitimate president. The illegitimate president's illegitimacy should just be shown and he should be removed by whatever means necessary. But that does not mean that we will not have an impeachment inquiry, an impeachment hearing, articles of impeachment, articles of impeachment passing or any of that, only that that is not what will remove Joe Biden from office. Assuming the process was all real and as presented to us, the face value interpretation would still indicate that there's absolutely no way Joe Biden will be impeached and convicted and removed because that would require two thirds of the Senate and there's no way in the world that would happen. But nonetheless, talk of impeachment is moving forward anyhow. And again, as in everything, the real question is, do these people who we would expect to Be closer to these situations and have more knowledge of these situations than conspiracy theorists on the internet. Is it possible that they actually believe the official story, that they actually believe the central narrative? They think everything is fairly normal. They got away with the election theft. This is the world we live in where elections are just stolen. We need to play the process out as normal, always respect the process, pretend that all the elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results reflect the will and intent of the American voter. Do they all actually believe that? If they do, then they might think that this impeachment process is fully real. It is possible that people close to these situations believe that all of this really is As it looks to be the face value interpretation, it's possible that people close to this situation actually think all of that is really true. There is nothing about their position of perceived power or access that suggests they are not similarly domesticated. We are talking about people who are corrupt and who are compromised, who are the beneficiaries of these systems. They're not going to begin questioning these systems that they depend on and from which they benefit so much. There's also the incentive naturally for any of these people who have gone along with everything throughout this time to have Joe Biden out of the picture, whether by impeachment or anything else that does not require an examination of his legitimacy. Get Joe Biden out of the picture, impeach Joe Biden, bring in. Kamala Harris, bring in Michelle Obama, bring in Gavin Newsom. None of it matters. Get Joe Biden out of there. And then the discussion about Joe Biden's legitimacy ends. I imagine there are plenty of people who think that and are probably pining away for it because maybe that will protect them from this vulnerability they have created for themselves by lying about our elections for the last nearly three years. And so if impeachment can accomplish that for them. Then, hey, let's do the impeachment. This is the Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, with Sean Hannity last night.
2: They bribed the Bidens, okay? This was given to the FBI. When Bill Barr finally found out about it, he sent it to his office in Philadelphia. They actually said that this was very credible. The FBI kept this from the IRS individuals for them ever to see it. So not only do they claim that they were bribed, we now find information that 16 out of 17 payments from Romania were provided to the Biden shell companies while he was vice president. When President Biden was running for office, he told the American public that he's never talked about business. He said his family has never received a dollar from China, which we now prove is not true. We now have some of the most credible whistleblowers. These 10-year IRS agents who have come forward said that the Biden family has been treated differently, that what Weiss has told us is different than what Garland and Weiss has told the public. And you're sitting here today where now you have found millions of foreign money, just what the 1023 alleges they did to Biden's family. Now we found that it has funneled through shell companies. If you're sitting in our position today, we would know none of this if Republicans had not taken the majority. We've only followed where the information has taken us. But... And this is rising to the level of impeachment inquiry, which provides Congress the strongest power to get the rest of the knowledge and information needed, because this president has also used something we have not seen since Richard Nixon, used the weaponization of government to benefit his family and deny Congress the ability to have the oversight. If we are talking about millions of dollars coming from our top geopolitical foes and that the Biden family has been corrupted and and took in all of this money and he was complicit in that, that, wouldn't that mean that we have a criminal enterprise as president of the United States that had to be on every level compromised by countries that are not particularly fond of us? Well, it's interesting that the Biden family runs, if they say, a company but never had an office and shell companies to be able to pay through. But if they really ran it for foreign countries, why didn't you get money from France, from Germany, from UK? Why does it have to be from China, Romania, um, in these countries that have real challenges and had problems going through? I believe we will follow this all the way to the end, and this is going to rise to an impeachment inquiry, the way the Constitution tells us to do this, and we have to get the answers to these questions. In the words of John Dean, a malignant cancer now is surrounding the Biden presidency, and those walls are closing awfully tight. Uh, This is not going the way I'm sure they wanted it to. And then we have on the other side of it, the assistance of the DOJ and the FBI. That's Jim Jordan's committee. Uh, Mr. Speaker, thank you.
0: And here is Republican Representative Ralph Norman today. If
2: it's not accountability now for the highest office holder in the land, when is it going to be? So um, he's right to do it, and I think he's going to continue. And I, I think at the end of the day, he will be impeached.
0: So it sounds like the path forward has been chosen, and we're going to see how that develops. We will probably get that public display of a few days or a few weeks of the impeachment process. Just like we saw under Donald Trump, they pulled the Ukraine impeachment hoax and then they pulled the impeachment hoax after Donald Trump, quote unquote, was not president anymore over the very violent insurrection he incited. We've seen how the process plays out. Now we're going to see that process play out in the other direction. Will we get more than one impeachment on Joe Biden? Will there be two impeachments because the first one failed? Now we need another one. Maybe we'll have two of them fail and a third and Joe Biden will be the first thrice impeached president. We've been told so many times that Donald Trump is the first twice impeached president. Wouldn't it be great for Joe Biden to beat his record? Think about what we have witnessed over these last few years. Joe Biden may very well be the most corrupt and compromised politician in all of American history, not just presidents. Politicians, any of them at any level, it would be difficult to beat Joe Biden's 50 year career of political corruption. The man legitimately runs a political crime family that works with actual mafia. He began by selling his political office to Delaware based corporations, and now he has expanded that operation around the world. They're not baseless claims. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's all evidenced. And all of it is finally coming to light. Think about these last few years, nearly three years ago now, it was a conspiracy theory to say that the Biden laptop was real and that it actually contained evidence of Joe Biden's corruption and compromising criminality. We had the letter from 51 former intelligence officials and the media tried to cover the whole thing up. And throughout all of that, American voters, these villagers out there who hated Donald Trump and didn't want to take responsibility for anything, they just knew that they hated Trump and Trump had to be gone. Well, they were provided plenty of cover to hold that position. But now everyone knows all of that was true. They can't deny that the laptop was real. They can't deny that Joe Biden is compromised the illegitimate administration is still trying to claim somehow or other that Joe Biden wasn't doing business with his son. Now, it's not that Joe Biden never discussed his son's business. It's that he somehow wasn't like actually part of these individual shell corporations that they laundered money through. They just keep changing the terms of their denials. But everybody knows This has been years in the process, and now the general public understands that it was true, not that it just became true, not that Republicans are getting away with spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories. They just know that Biden really was this corrupt. And the truth is, none of them want to take responsibility for Biden anyway. They could always say, well, yeah, okay, but it's worth it because Donald Trump is so bad. But there's no evidence of that. After all this time, they still have no evidence. The evidence is overwhelming that no, it's actually Joe Biden that's bad. It's Joe Biden that's corrupt. It's Joe Biden that is compromising our country to our foreign adversaries. People understand that now. It's taken years, but people understand that the defenses around this narrative are totally down like the four shields on the Death Star. They're all gone. The attack is now incoming and every bit of it is landing. There is no more defense around Joe Biden's reputation. But that doesn't mean he'll be impeached and convicted and removed. He may be impeached. The country might hear all the rest of the evidence and it still won't get him out of there. Imagine what people will think at that point. Wow, this president is completely corrupt, completely compromised, and we just saw the rest of the government, protect him. And he's still running for president. Even establishment Democrats at that point will want to figure out some way to get rid of Joe Biden and replace him with Michelle Obama or Gavin Newsom. Maybe they'll even settle for Kamala Harris. That is how toxic Joe Biden is going to become. And they're not going to be able to avoid it. But the truth is, this process is repeating on all these verticals. It's not just Joe Biden, it's COVID, it's the vaccines, it's the election, it's the insurrection, it's everything. It takes a long time for the public to be shown all of this, to take those deep seated animosities and make them untenable because the information is so overwhelming. But that's exactly where we're headed, and that's exactly where we have always been headed. This is why I've had this confidence the entire time. There is no way the truth could be stopped or avoided. It was true. The evidence was there. All it takes is everybody continuing to push forward and never silencing themselves, never backing down, never allowing that incentive and punishment structure to deter you and never becoming domesticated to the point where you will not stand up for your own survival. And that's what it is at this point your personal survival and the survival of this nation. It is dependent on your ability to stand up and tell the truth about things that at this point, virtually everyone knows the social incentive and punishment structure is no longer a threat to you. This is not the time to slow down or back down. This is the time to step on the gas and throw it in these commies faces. And the best part is they know what's coming. This is MSNBC reporting on Donald Trump's truth social habits.
3: Series of posts on Truth Social last night, the former president railed against prosecutors as well as President Joe Biden for what he falsely claims is election interference for the 2024 race. One message read in part this, do they understand the damage being done to America? It will only get worse. We must stop these monsters from further destroying our country. Trump also shared this ominous post, which read, nothing can stop what is coming. Nothing. If there was any doubt about the meaning behind that message, the user who initially posted it later retruthed himself, this time with a QAnon slogan as a hashtag, directed at the so-called leader of the far right group. And of course, some of this language, as we heard also in that radio interview at the very top, uh, Sam, comes, just invokes a lot of the ominous warnings of surrounded January 6th. We We know what happened that day. Doesn't seem like Donald Trump's being particularly subtle here.
0: Oh no, it's QAnon. And Donald Trump is the leader of this far right group. And Trump retruthing this post that says nothing can stop what is coming. Nothing. Oh, he's rallying the troops just like he did for January 6th. If he keeps retruthing these posts on his social media site, which by the way is a total failure and nobody's ever on it, we could have another very violent insurrection. Absolute panic and meltdown by MSNBC. It seems like maybe they have learned what it means. That nothing can stop what is coming because nothing can stop what is coming. Everything they do speeds it along. The more dramatic they make things, the more obvious it becomes to everyone who's awake exactly what's going on. And that pattern is inescapable. There is only more truth to follow, which means more people wake up and eventually we hit that critical mass and then. All of these people are absolutely screwed. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do. By signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree Linktree.com slash I'mYourModerator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app